we have been studying the seven churches to whom letters were written by the risen Christ through his apostle John. I'm sort of sad that we've come to the end of the seven churches, and I hope that many of you will take this sometimes as a study of your own. Write your own little commentary on it. See how relevant the Word of God is still to us today. Let me review just sentence by sentence. The first church we studied was Ephesus. It is highly commended for its labor and patient endurance, but they left their first love. Such as Jeremiah describes in chapter 2, verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me, but your love has grown cold. And so we do not want our love for Christ to grow cold. The church at Smyrna was characterized by suffering. It's praised and encouraged, but warned that fierce persecution is yet to come to it. They're not to fear, however, but to be faithful unto death and that a crown of life will await them. The third church we studied was the church at Pergamos. This church had to be characterized by a fight for the truth. It had begun to admit error, the doctrine of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, who loved place and power. Uh, what havoc these two evil principles have always wrought in the church when people seek place and power. The church at Thyatira, was a church that faced deception. Uh, the Lord saw an increase and an advance in some things which he commended in the church, but he saw a fearful root of bitterness had sprung up in their midst through a woman who is characterized as Jezebel, a teacher of immorality. And we are taught here that holiness and soundness of doctrine must go hand in hand. The church at Sardis is a church that had the name of being alive and yet was actually spiritually dead. Its works were beautiful grave clothes, which were a thin disguise for an empty shell. And then last week we studied the church at Philadelphia, a church which had an open door for service and witness for Christ set before it, even though it was a little weak. It is told to hold fast to what it has and to be evangelistic and to go boldly through that open door and to reach out for Christ to others. And now we come to the seventh and the last of these churches, and it's very appropriate for Pentecost Sunday. Because each one of these churches, the letter will always be uh, ended by he who hath an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you like to take your bulletin and look at it and read with me this letter? I'll read the version that's printed in the bulletin. I'm sorry about my little microphone. I stepped on it the other day and pulled it off, and it's like a dog flea collar or something. It, um, I got it on upside down now. Um, now, do you have the letter? It's there printed in the bulletin. It is a good printing job, and it's very clear. So let's read it together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, 
the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I myself conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. The last letter that we have to study is, uh, is a grave warning and also a gracious invitation. It's coupled with the judgment and the severity of God. I have often said that God judges with a severity that's greater than anything you can possibly imagine. And he also judges with a mercy and a tenderness and a knowledge that's greater than any of us could imagine. First, let me tell you a little bit about the city of Laodicea. It was named after one of the Roman emperor's wives. Uh, it was a very wealthy city. Uh, it was a city not far away from Colossae. And one of the reasons that you can have complete trust in the authority and the inspiration of the Bible, and also of the integrity of this part of Scripture, is that you see that the Apostle John has such understanding and insights into the historic situation that existed in Laodicea. He knows what went on there. He knows that a church was formed there. A couple of weeks ago, down at my house, where on Wednesday evening we have been studying the Bible together, and S.L. Brusso has been so greatly helpful in her deep insights into Scripture. We had come to the end of studying the letter to Colossae, and we saw there an allusion made to the church at uh, Laodicea. And it seems that uh, the churches would receive a letter to Colossae, which might also go to the letter uh, to the church at Laodicea. Uh, many scholars believe that this letter to Laodicea may also be uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. Well, Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was the center of all of the banking arrangements made for Asia. Twice the city had suffered severely from the ravages of earthquakes. Remember I told you not long ago that many of these cities lay on a fault line where there was volcanic activity and earthquakes. In 17 AD it had been devastated by an earthquake, the same one that laid waste to Sardis and Philadelphia. And then in 60 AD it was laid waste again. But Laodicea was a rich city. 
In fact, it was so rich that it didn't require any federal aid to rebuild it. All of us who watch television, every time there's a disaster any place, and I'm not fussing against this talk, every time there's a disaster in any big city, uh, here go the mayors to Washington, D.C. to get some money to help uh, overtake whatever's happened. Well, the Roman government did the same thing with its uh, big cities when the devastation took place, but Laodicea was very rich, so rich and so powerful that the Roman historian Tacitus, I was a history major back in Texas in college, and I had to read Tacitus. And Tacitus even writes about Laodicea. He said that Laodicea was so rich that it wouldn't uh, take any help from the Roman government. And that caused him to put up some monument to it. And later archaeologists found that inscription. And uh, I guess we'd put up a monument to one today if it did the same thing. A very considerable part of the wealth in Laodicea came from the clothing industry. That's why you're going to find an allusion directed here to wearing clothing. I'll clothe your nakedness with white garments. Remember we said that white garments, white is a very important color here. White garments were the garments of the poor. Whitsunday uh, got its name because people put on a white robe and they were baptized to symbolize the cleansing away of sin and of a new life in Christ. Uh, and so white here shows that the gospel reaches not just to those who are in gorgeous colored apparel, but to those who are poor. Laodicea made a lot of money through the selling of a very beautiful uh, kind of a cashmere-type wool that was black, and garments were made out of it. They had a garment industry there, and uh, those garments uh, received a distinctive name and were highly prized, and so it was a mercantile city of considerable uh, pride in its wealth. Um, also, it not only, we have indications from history of its wealth here, uh, but it uh, was the place of a famous mineral spring. You'll have to pardon my constant allusions to Texas, but I grew up out in Texas where there is a town named Mineral Wells, <laughs> and the water tastes awful. And, uh, <laughs> but it's supposed to be good for you. And they used to uh, distill it in, into a crystal, and it was called crazy water crystals. The Indians named it that, and the Indians were right. Uh, and uh, when I was a boy back during the Depression, I've often said about the only entertainment I could afford was to go to a revival meeting or a medicine show. And uh, they would sell crazy water crystals. And uh, these, uh, it was some kind of... Uh, uh, crystallized chemical that came out of those soda-laden springs that were around mineral wells. And there were people who thought that it would cure every known ailment. And uh, it was sold by the medicine men who came through our little East Texas town, and, and we used to go watch it. Uh, well, this town of Laodicea was not far from very hot mineral springs. Now, I'm told that some of this mineral water never tasted good to me, but some of it, people say that when it's real hot, that it's not so bad. I guess the temperature heat is so great it distracts your attention from the chemicals in it uh, a little bit. But in order to get into the city of Laodicea, it had to go through almost seven miles, a little over six miles of aqueduct. 
uh, to get to the city. Well, you can imagine that by the time it got to the city of Laodicea, it would have cooled off considerably from the time it came out of the hot springs. And so by the time it got to Laodicea, it would be a very nauseating, uh, lukewarm, tepid uh, thing. Now, there was a famous medical school there. And I thought about this the other day. They also worshipped the god of Scapulus. The, that's that staff that you see. I saw a medical school graduation take place for the first time the other day. And I was amazed at uh, the strength of a big fellow uh, who was one of the marshals who was carrying a big, heavy mahogany seal. It was a, a, a staff with those serpents entwined around it. Well, that's the, the god of Asclepius, and that's the signet of the uh, medical profession. And when he went marching down the aisle in Duke Ch uh, University Chapel, uh, this poor fellow, I don't see how he could carry that thing, it was mahogany, but he w and it was big, but he was strong, and he was carrying it. And I looked at that, and I thought, that goes right back to the Bible times here. Because uh, Asclepius was one of the gods that was worshipped there, and uh, they used some chemicals to perfect... Uh, an ointment that is called a Phrygian ointment that was used as both an eye salve and an ear salve. It's a little difficult to figure out how something could be good for your eyes and your ears, too. But we still claim about the same thing for our medicines on the television commercials today. And uh, uh, so that was a part of it. Well, it was wealthy there. Also, there was a Jewish community that lived in this city. Uh, and this Jewish community was very prosperous. I think they were involved in the banking industry there. Uh, we know they were prosperous because at one time the Romans confiscated uh, the temple tax and found that they had 20 pounds of gold, 16 ounces and a pound. And the prices of gold today, that was a pretty good collection. And uh, uh, 20 pounds. And so one of the historians thought this was significant and put it down. Now, all of this is to say that this city of Laodicea was rich. And the Laodiceans, in their rich richness, thought that they had need of nothing. That's one of the deceitful things that happens to us about riches. And so that's a little bit of the history about it. Now then, let's look uh, more at the text. And if you want to look at the letter there, you can see. And to the angel... The angel is the minister, the minister of this church in Laodicea. Now, Archippus may have been a minister in that church. And in Colossians, right at the end of it, Paul sent word to a man named Archippus who was a minister, who was responsible for the souls of his people. And he said in the close of Colossians, And say unto Archippus, Take heed to the ministry that thou hast fulfilled of the Lord, that thou fulfill it. That thou hast received of the Lord, that thou fulfill it. You have a responsibility, you're anointed by God, you're the minister, and you fulfill the responsibility that's been laid upon you. Now, it may have been that Archippus, under the influence as cities often do, and churches often do, if there are churches in a resort area, they tend to blend with the resort. If there are churches in an academic community, they tend to blend with the academic community. This is not always bad, but it can be bad if we let things get out of balance. And uh, it may have been that the 
uh, prosperity of the city uh, took away the faith that might have been born in times of adversity. It's very difficult to be rich and to be pious, to be rich and to be holy. And that's uh, what Jesus warned against. There are temptations two ways. Uh, one is that we begin to trust in uncertain riches more than the Lord. And the other thing on the poverty side is that we think there's some virtue in being poor. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Now then, this is the message that comes to the minister. And maybe it was uh, some successor to Archippus who had inherited a, a declining situation in that church. The words of the Amen. That's an interesting Hebrew word, and it shows again that the writer, whom I believe to be the Apostle John, had this great familiarity with Old Testament Scripture. Amen. has to do with the very nature of God, and it means rock. It's something that has to do with uh, what we are to take very, very seriously. The words of the Amen, that is Christ, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, and the Greek word there is archi, uh, uh, is the word for, from which we get archaeology. Uh, the one who is in the beginning. Remember in the first chapter of Colossians, we are told that all things were created uh, and that Christ was an, a part in creating all things that exist. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, said John in the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of John. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, that's uh, also reiterated in a different form in Colossians. So we are anchoring it right into what's taught in Colossians and right in what's taught in the teaching of the Gospel of John and right in what's taught in Genesis. Uh, this is the deity of Christ is being strongly affirmed. I know your works. You see, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. Now, this is interesting. You are neither cold, and the word for cold in Greek means at the point of freezing. You are neither cold nor hot, and the word for hot is at the point of boiling. And that's interesting. I know you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. Now, we sort of think it's a virtue to be lukewarm. But that's not the way the Lord looks at it. You can't be lukewarm about Jesus. William James was a great psychologist, and he said that religion was either a consuming passion or a dull habit. And there's a lot of truth in that statement. A consuming passion or a dull habit. That you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. And here our translators have spared us the crudity of what is actually said in the Greek. He means... I am nauseated and ready to vomit. The sickening, chemical, lukewarm, wretched taste that's there is no good. 
So this is a terrible indictment, a stern warning, a, a very grave warning. For you say, I am rich. And in Hebrew poetry, it's a, a continuous action here. You're saying I am rich. You're saying I am prospering. You're saying I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You think that you're rich because you've got all that gold? You think that you are not naked because you've got all that garment industry? You think that you're not blind because you've got all that eye ointment? Well, you're poor, and you're wretched, and you're pitiable, and you're naked, and you're blind. Now, where can we find an example of this? This comes when we assume a pharisaical attitude often. When I think of this, I think of a story that Jesus told about two debtors, one who owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. And you know what happened? He was telling that story to a man named Simon the Pharisee. He was telling the story because there was a woman who had stooped down at his feet and had begun to anoint his feet with ointment and to wash his feet with the hot tears that were falling from her face. She wanted forgiveness. And Jesus was accepting her plea for forgiveness. But Simon the Pharisee was blind. He was blind to the need of that woman. He couldn't see the, the need in her heart. And he couldn't see the miracle that was taking place when Jesus was extending love. And I expect that Jesus was saying to Simon the Pharisee, you think you're rich. You think you're powerful. You think you're prosperous. But you don't know that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and naked and blind. Because if his eyes had been open and he could have seen the need of that woman, he would have reached down and took her by the hand and said to Jesus, Oh, my master, I see what you're talking about. I know, I know, I know that your love extends to her and that you're going to give her a new life in Christ. And I want to help. And he would have said to her, My sister, I want you to know you don't have to live like you've been living. You don't have to do those ugly, evil things anymore. I'm going to help you. I've got money. And you've taught me a better lesson than anyone else could have ever taught me. And Jesus, I thank you for opening my eyes. But Simon the Pharisee was blind. I think he was like the church at Laodicea. Now look, the Lord's word of stern, grave judgment comes as he has diagnosed the situation, but then he begins to give advice. I counsel you. It's tremendously important. He is called Wonderful Counselor. Those of us who are in the ministry have a responsibility in counseling. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, the purest gold, that you may be truly rich. That is no mixture of any adulterated thing. 
white garments, the kind that I give, neither peculiar to the rich, but white garments of righteousness to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Only Christ can clothe us in the righteousness that we need. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauties are my glorious dress. In flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head and salve to anoint your eyes. If Simon the Pharisee had let Jesus open his eyes, he wouldn't have been blind to that woman. That you may see. Now look at this. Those whom I love, I reprove and I chasten. Now we are told in the epistle to the Hebrews that no chastening for the moment seemeth well. We don't like to be chastened. But because God loves us, he rebukes us when we are wrong and he chastens us. I reprove and chasten. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. And if you feel his hand of chastening, then respond to it. God can do great things with a truly repentant person. But for one who is proud and unrepentant, there's nothing there to work with. So be zealous. And zealous means to bring to a boil, to have red fire like Pentecost. So be zealous and repent. Change your way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. These beautiful words. And it's in its continuous, its present action. It's knocking. Behold, I am standing at the door knocking, insistently knocking. I'm not going away. I'm going to keep knocking. And I want you to open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice, and he'll knock at any door, he chooses to knock at. He's sovereign. He hasn't got to just knock at this door or that door. He knocks where he chooses to knock. But he's knocking insistently. He's standing there knocking. But he won't tear the door down. You have to open the door and let him come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock it. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. Now, for Orientals to eat a meal together, and I've eaten in an Arab Bedouin home, uh, it's a real experience. They serve the food to you and stand around and watch you eat. Uh, I never have been able to get used to that. Uh, but they'll, you, you just got to eat it. Uh, they put it out there and stand there and watch you eat. But when you've eaten with them, you're under the protection of them, and it shows a good feeling. It's a high thing. It's not like we do eat and watch Hogan's Heroes or or whatever the news is going to be. Uh, it's a big deal. Uh, eating is a big uh, thing, and it binds them together. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in, and I want to eat with you so that we're identified together. And he does this at the Lord's table to celebrate redemption. And then listen to what he says. I will come in and eat with him and he with me, and he who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself had conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who is near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me conclude by telling you just this 
in closing. Down in Anderson Auditorium, we have some wonderful preachers. And uh, I remember going down to hear Dr. Addison Leach. And I did not know when I heard Dr. Addison Leach, who was president of Pittsburgh Seminary, that he was not near from the time of dying, for the seeds of cancer were already in him. And those who had the privilege of reading any of the books of this enormously gifted and talented preacher and theologian would respect and love him. Ad Leach taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary just before he died. He had taught at Pittsburgh Senior Seminary. He had a Ph.D. from Cambridge. Dr. Leach oh, was such a beautiful person. And one time he told a very interesting story. He told about how right after World War II in Pittsburgh, where he taught in the seminary, that his house was one of the first houses to put in a picture window. They were new things right after World War II. And he said that the picture window faced a vacant lot. And there was a little boy named Bobby that lived next door to him that he always loved and wanted to befriend. Bobby got a new BB gun. And one day, Bobby was trying out his BB gun, and he hit that new picture window and broke it. And he ran like everything and went in the house and went upstairs and closed the door and waited for the telephone to ring. Or he waited for a knock at the door. The telephone rang, but it was for his sister. And then he sweated some more. No knock came at the door. The next day, he went outside. He couldn't face Dr. Leach. He saw Dr. Leach come out. He ran in. When Dr. Leach was left, he came out. When Dr. Leach would come home from the seminary and round the corner and start toward the house, Bobby would drop his baseball glove and run in the house real quick. And so this kept going on. It was like a cuckoo clock. Bobby, <laughs> Dr. Leach would come out, Bobby would go in. Bobby would come out, Dr. Leach would come in. So Dr. Leach hid for him one day, and he watched him. And <laughs> when he came by, he grabbed him. And he said, now, Bobby, this has gone on long enough. He said, I've got the window paid for. And the people have put a brand new window in. And I want you to know that you're forgiven. And he said, I don't want your forgiveness. You see, he had a lot of safe, face-saving stuff and pride that went into it. I don't want your forgiveness. And he pulled away from Dr. Leach and ran away. But Dr. Leach knew that he had made his point. And when he came home again, the next day, he was getting out of his car. He had a lot of books and a briefcase. Bobby was playing baseball, and he saw that Dr. Leach was loaded down. He threw his glove down. He ran over and said, can I help you, <laughs> Dr. Leach, with the books? And he carried the briefcase, and he carried the books. And then on Saturday, Dr. Leach would be putting in his flowers, his bedding plants out in the yard, and Bobby would be playing ball, and he'd see him, and he ran over, and he said, Can I help you? And he'd hand him a plant. He would take his trowel and put it in. And they became the greatest of friends. They loved each other. They loved each other because the boy became humble, admitted his need for forgiveness, accepted it, and then identified and entered into a fellowship with him. And that's what, behold, I stand at the door and knock means. And if any man opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. And that gracious invitation is given to each one of us 
here today. Jesus wants to come into your heart. He wants to forgive. He wants to make it all right and peaceful so that we won't have to be ashamed or afraid or high. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus warns us because he loves us. And then he warmly invites us to come in and to be wholehearted and to give ourselves without any reservation to him. And then we have fellowship with him and we have fellowship with one another. Help us to walk in the light as he is in the light, knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and that therein we can fellowship with each other. We pray, O God, our Father, that thou wilt forgive the coldness of our hearts. We accept your love. We adore you. We pray for the fire of your love to burn in us and to burn evermore until we burn out for you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.